Hello, Gut Check Project fans. We've got a new feature, and these are basically the Gut Check Project revisits. So this is revisit number one, and we were prompted to revisit our interview with Dr. Wade McKenna, arguably one of the top five, if not three, authorities on stem cell research, but even more importantly, stem cell application. And our very own Kenneth Brown, Dr. Kenneth Brown, is now under the care of Dr. Wade McKenna using stem cells. So here in the future, uh, not too distant, Dr. Brown, Ken will be sharing uh, his experience. And I think that everyone will be quite interested in the methods and the techniques that uh, Wade is using with Ken to honestly just get him to feeling better. Regardless, let's hop right into the very first Gut Check Project Revisit Stem Cells with Dr. Wade McKenna. now joined with Dr. Wade McKenna. Dr. McKenna, thanks so much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for Absolutely. So, um, see what I'm doing right here? Yeah. You, you know, you know, whenever, you know, whenever uh, Rhonda Patrick goes on Joe Rogan, he's like, all right, everybody get your pen and paper out. You're going to be taking some notes. I'm just like, <laughs> all right. My favorite Joe Rogan comment about Rhonda Patrick, he says he never feels more like he's absolutely just a caveman than after he talks to her. Right. <laughs> She's got a lot of knowledge. That's awesome. She's got a lot of knowledge, but so do you. So, yes, you do. Um, I already went through a couple of small things in the last half hour. You played football at Oklahoma State. You've been an orthopedic surgeon for several years, but that's not really what you're here to talk about today. Uh, well, well, the cool part is um, I actually... Uh, um, Can you hear him? I, uh -oh. Are we good? We got a little mic problem. We're going to get something fixed here real quick. All right. There we the, go. The, That's the, cool, the cool part for me um, Thanks, uh, is I've kind of been allowed to um, reinvent uh, myself as a traditional surgeon when um, the science kind of caught up to what we do and figure out that a lot of what we would think of as traditional medical approaches um, were less than optimal uh, from a patient standpoint. So I actually did a fellowship in trauma and post-traumatic reconstruction after an orthopedic surgery residency and after a general um, uh, surgery internship. So um, in, during a general surgery internship, when I thought I was going to uh, do transplant surgery, because that was the coolest guys at the hospital at the time. Where'd you train at? Uh, here in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, multiple hospitals, but DFW Medical Center's where I ended up doing my orthopedic residency. I did my fellowship in trauma at Tampa General uh, with Roy Sanders, a 2,000-bed hospital where uh, there was two trauma fellows that kind of ran the, the program. Uh, we had 10 residents and uh, four helicopters and no sleep. <laughs> Which we can, we'll have, we'll have a whole new episode on what lack of sleep will do to your stem cells. But, oh, yeah, uh, well, it, lack of sleep and not healthiest, eat, not like lack of sleep induced by fasting where you feel like Superman, lack of sleep induced of, you know, falling asleep in the, in the lounge chair, uh, waiting for the nurse to tap you on the shoulder to say it's time to, you know, go from zero to hero. Again. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but during the trauma fellowship, um, we became very adept uh, because we got stuck with 
a lot of the fractures that other people had treated that didn't heal. And so the post-traumatic part of that is acutely, we were stabilizing multiple extremity injuries, but we also had to get those people over the multiple extremity injuries. And we would get referred a lot of the, the trauma patients, the gentleman trauma is what we called it, which comes to visit you in clinic doesn't come to you in the middle of the night by a helicopter. The gentleman trauma that walks in your clinic, he's like, I've got this knife stuck yeah. right here. <laughs> well, the, the, hey, I've had five surgeries on my femur fracture and I still can't walk and there's still no bone and I still have, it still hasn't healed. Um, and we had to find a way to not only promote, try to trick the body into healing something that already showed it didn't want to heal, um, but in the least invasive way possible, kind of turn the table to kind of help the patients generate new bone. The best way to do that early on was bone marrow aspirate concentrate. The very best and first uses of bone marrow aspirate concentrate in traditional surgery was in the treatment of non-unions. When someone has a fracture that doesn't heal, um, there's delayed union, which just means it takes forever, that, but there's non-union, which just means it doesn't heal. There's no bone. And if you have a leg that doesn't have a healed fracture, you can't walk. You can't put weight on it. You have an upper extremity with an unhealed fracture. You, you, you pretty much flail, right? You, can't, you, you have a non, non-functional extremity. Bone marrow aspirate concentrate in the treatment protocol of this allowed us to be much less invasive instead of just, it doesn't make a lot of, uh, of sense to just take out all the other plates, unstrip the blood supply to a muscle, replate a fracture, further destroying the blood supply to the fracture that already didn't have enough blood supply to heal. So let's go ahead and revisit that really quick because as a orthopedic surgeon, that's interesting to hear somebody, because that's typically, that's a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, that last surgery didn't work, let me operate again. That's exactly right. So say one more time what reoperating does. Well, here's the problem with reoperating. If you didn't heal the first time, it's because of the formation of scar tissue, not healed tissue. So the healing gets stopped, the fibrotic tissue begins, scar tissue hurts, scar tissue doesn't have much blood supply, and scar tissue isn't very functional. It's fibrotic, it, it can take up some space, but for the most part, the difference between, the interface between healthy tissue and scar tissue continues to be painful forever, every time you move something. So if you have a big fibrotic knot of scar within a tendon, and you have some healthy tissue that generate, that, that connects to it, the mismatch and pliability, that mismatch of, you would never use metals that have different hardness when you're putting together an engine. Right, because the soft metal and the hard metal cause fretting and corrosion and, and significant problems and, and metal mismatch. Soft tissue mismatch is just as big a problem. We create scar tissue in people that hurts, generates pain, generates an inflammatory response, so a chronic inflammatory response from cytokines that without decent blood supply to a scar tissue, your body can't get rid of. So you end up with long-term and continued muscle death. And a lot of our surgery approaches, and a lot of surgery where you would just strip off the blood supply to the bone that it needs to help it heal, don't work very well because we're not focused on how the body needs to be able to heal this fracture. We're focused on making an x-ray look pretty. And Ooh, did you hear that? I did, uh, just to make it look nice. So, I mean, you're, I think it's fascinating because essentially I've done the same I've done the same thing in my practice where I've kind of moved from traditional gastroenterology. You've become almost a functional orthopedist. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to think that um, that I, I just come to the table with some of the extra tools that 
um, I need to kind of set the table for the patient to help them heal, right? The, the body has a unique ability to overcome a lot of things, and, and our body actually wants to heal. A lot of times I'm just trying to help people get out of their own way. Uh, the same way the gastroenterology diet, you're trying to help people get out of their own way from being in bad health, right? Mm -hmm. with, with orthopedics, I have to help the body. The body knows the triggers and the mechanisms and has the intact growth factors to help your body heal. As we get a little older, as we have chronic injury, UV light, radiation, cigarettes, coffee, alcohol, late nights, cortisol, stress, we impair our body's ability to respond appropriately to injuries. What the stem cell does for you is that's the cell that helps you respond to injury. The problem is as you get a little older, you have less of them and they don't do as much as they used to do. I want to get to that in a second. I'm still, I want to hear the history. I want to hear your yeah. path because you ended with, during residency, we started to yeah. do bone marrow concentrate, bone marrow aspirate concentrate. For non-union fractures. For non-union yeah. fractures. So it you were getting with, the worst people, so you guys were willing to try some things that other people weren't. Well, we had the opportunity because these people had no other options, right? So the best part about doing a trauma fellowship is we were their last hope. We were the the uh, island of misfit toys, so to speak, right? Island of misfit toys. So <laughs> we, we used to, we used to, you know, especially around Christmas time when that movie comes out with Chris Kringle, we, we, we would literally collect the injured patients from all over South Florida, South, uh, North Florida, Alabama, Georgia. We were the only level one trauma center on the West Coast of Florida. And um, so when people would fail multiple surgeries, we, we, they'd walk into the resident clinic and, and you had to come up with a way to solve their problem. And a lot of times it was as easy as finding a way to put more stress on the fracture. You know, they'd have some plate that was plated in distraction. So a lot of times it was just taking some screws out. Sometimes it was um, loosening up a frame that was holding the fracture apart and didn't let the fracture heal. We would compress the frame so that the piezoelectric effect, you know, fractures need stress to generate bone. So stress across bone generates an electronegative charge, calcium and phosphorus are positively charged. The biomechanics of basic physiology, which unfortunately as surgeons, I don't, I don't know when we're supposed to forget that, but, but apparently we do. Uh, it's trained out of us, is what I always tell the residents when they're with us, is don't let, don't let basic science and, and, and physiology be trained out of you uh, into a surgical approach. But when you create an electronegative charge from a compression against a fracture, <laughs> calcium goes in and so you can get some healing. But without blood supply, the, there's, a, there's a rule, in, and I'm, I'm an osteopathic physician, so I went to DO Medical School, because our team doctor in Oklahoma State was DO and, and getting manipulated felt good and I wanted to know how to do that and I didn't even know there was a difference. I knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I said, can I be an orthopedic surgeon if I was DO? And he said, absolutely. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> um, that's about how I made that decision. Oklahoma State had a DO medical school. OU's was MD. The last thing in the world I wanted was a red diploma. <laughs> uh, so, Oklahoma State fans are yeah. pretty loyal. Yeah. So I got accepted yeah, at Oklahoma are. State. No, you. Yeah. That was an easy decision. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even know what a, a DO was, but one of the DOs at the time gave me a book called The Difference a DO Makes. And um, he was trying to teach me about the school I just decided to go to. And they said that uh, on, when it comes to healing, that the rule of the artery is supreme. 
Oh. The rule of the, the artery, artery is supreme. Yeah, so the rule, the, yeah. the, rule, right. the rule of the artery is supreme, but lymphatics have veto power, right? I've so, never heard this. So that was the, it's, it's the foundation of AT still creation. Of, so, you know, osteopathic medicine was created by an MD, right? AT still was an MD. He started the first DO medical school in Kansas, but he did it because he was unhappy with traditional medical approaches mobilization of the joint instead of letting it get all swollen up seemed to make the patients function a little bit better right and he actually cured the plague by creating what's called a lymphatic pump people would breathe out all the way he would push down on their chest and then he would let up and it would create open up the alveoli and he could get people over dramatic pulmonary effusions by creating this thing called a lymphatic pump and it would get the chylomicrons out of the out of the lung tissue well with what we're doing it literally goes back to the foundations of what created a lot of modern medical science is that without blood supply, there's no healing, right? And that's true for orthopedic fractures. It's true for muscles, tendon injuries. When we first started doing bone marrow, go back to that point on, on the trauma surgeon, we weren't real sure that if we put bone marrow into a tendon that it wouldn't make bone. I mean, that was our fear. We thought, we thought when we took bone marrow aspirin concentrate, we were real careful to make sure we, we kept it in the, in the osseous part now, of the had fracture. Had this been done on animals yet, or were you guys Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it, 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 a matter of fact, there, was a, there were some really good studies published on bone marrow going back to the, to the mid-90s. Um, there, there, there was actually a really a great study, but here's how little they knew about what we were doing. In Israel, um, 15, 20 years ago, there was a study on pro complex proximal tibia fractures, uh, which is a disaster. If you have a tibial plateau at the base of your knee, if it's a complex fracture more than one part, it's called a Schatzker 6, right? So Schatzker's fracture. So if you have a Schatzker 6, um, we used to call it FUBAR, right? It's, it's, <laughs> so that was our classification. Um, so we... we uh, with the Schatzker 6, what they did in Israel is they treated um, half of them with bone marrow aspirate concentrate and half of them with just plating and without bone marrow aspirate concentrate. But interestingly, because it was so early, they added PRP to the bone marrow aspirate concentrate thinking that it made it work better. And really all they did is dilute it down. So PRP, the machine that I helped develop, the arterial site machine. Hold on one second. John, Define what PRP okay, is. Okay, so the machine that we work with, the machine that I've been working with for, for quite a while and, and have actually helped, um, uh, hopefully, uh, without, I mean, not taking real credit for anything, but, but knowing that, that I've been a significant part of the innovation of this, the development of their kit, right? I mean, I actually patented the Bomerospirate catheter. The catheter that comes in that kit is my, my design. Um, PRP is when you take whole blood, and spin it down in the machine to concentrate the growth factors and get rid of some of the white cells. And so you create what's called platelet-rich plasma, right? And platelet-rich plasma is generated from the centrifugation of whole blood into the growth factors and platelets that are needed to help get rid of inflammatory change. A lot of times getting rid of the inflammatory change is the way to start the healing cycle. Inflammation gets in the way. You gotta put out the fire before you can grow new grass, right? And so with inflammatory change, if you turn the inflammation off, ligamentous tissue tendons heal faster. With bone aspirate concentrate, what wasn't really understood as well in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, and it is now hopefully, is that bone marrow is still 97% whole blood, right? 
So when we spin down bone marrow, you're getting platelet-rich plasma. So you're you're actually doing PRP. Yeah, uh, but you're doing PRP with stem cells. Yeah. So bone marrow spoke concentrate has the stem cells needed to help you heal. And we know that those stem cells, because when, when, I don't know how old you are, but while I was in school, there wasn't such a thing as a mesenchymal stem cell. Okay, a mesenchymal stem cell was named the mesenchymal stem cell in 1995 by a doctor named Arnie Kaplan at Case Western. And Arnie Kaplan um, named a cell that previously in medicine, what we do is we name cells based on the characteristics, right? So before it was a mesenchymal stem cell, it was an aplastic, undifferentiated, pluripotential adherent cell. Yeah, I liked it way better back in that day. Yeah. I think, it, yeah. I think they got way too, yeah. way too uppity by calling it mesenchymal yeah. stem cell. Yeah, I'm but, old school, baby. Well, and, and not only that, but there's, it, when people use the term mesenchymal stem cell, most of the time they don't even know what they're talking about, right? So there's a CD marker, a surface cell marker. There's 600 different types of these cells based on their surface marker. So when we talk about mesenchymal stem cells, people think there's like one kind. No, there's some of them that we don't really need to help you heal. There's some of them that we need crucially to help you heal. And we know the difference between these based on their CD markers. So we've actually quantitated what cells we want, what cells we don't want, and found a way to concentrate the cells we want when we do these spins. So with bone marrow, you're getting platelet-rich plasma, but you're getting the best platelet-rich plasma because you're spinning it from the most immature blood. When you spin down whole blood, you're getting PRP, but you're getting none, no stem cells. All right, so let's clarify, because this is... It's a definition is, of it's, terms, It's right? beautiful and it's brilliant, but what you're saying is that saying just stem cells doesn't mean just stem cells. No. Stem cells, when we have these mesenchymal stem cells, which is the earliest of the stem cell, correct? Right. Then you guys have markers where you can determine the type what of stem cell, need. which ones do you need? What ones preferentially help you grow cartilage? What ones preferentially help you grow tendon? What ones preferentially grow fat? Right, so fat stem cells. The, if you make if you make fat graph or a stem cell graph from fat, that those cells grow fat really well. Yeah. But you know what they don't grow really well is cartilage because there's a peptide called SOX9 that's not secreted by the fat stem cell. Right. So when we quantitate stem cells, I'm not interested in what those cells could become. Let me just say right now because this is my pet peeve. If you go to a stem cell lecture. And the first slide they show is this one cell can become these five types of cells. And the differentiation and the ability of these cells to become these five is what makes it so magic. That's completely wrong, right? That's true in the lab. That's not how it works in the body. What happens in the body is your, cell, your body sees an injury. It secretes cells, starting with the hemopoietic stem cell, which is the CD34, right? So CD34. Right, hold, on. hold on one second. I've, got, I've, I've been messaged. Where it says, okay, I'm getting a little stressed out. I feel like I'm producing the wrong stem cells because I'm putting on weight. How do I change my, <laughs> how do I change my stem cells to get rid of the adipose tissue? Yeah. And then somebody, well. <laughs> somebody else just sent there and just go, I got lost at CD something or other. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, CD so, yeah, so you were way more scientific our, our, than I thought I would be as an orthopedist. I thought I'd come in bone bent, me make straight, right? <laughs> uh, so, so when I was a resident, or actually when I was in medical school, the running joke at the time, <laughs> Orthopedics was the hardest residency to get into. Yeah, but you had to become stupid right away. And then, by the time we were residents, the attendings would just be like, how do we take the smartest guys and make them the dumbest yeah. people? We need, to we need to 
unlearn. That's what I talk about when I mean. I mean it when I say don't unlearn medicine. Right? You get the orthopedic resident. It was the hardest residency to get to, but you were expected to never even look at an EKG again. Right? If you walked into a surgery patient and you're like looking at their head or their EKG, the attendings would walk in and go, "What the." How are you doing? No, I think it's I think I think so, the person to actually talk about this is Eric, who, yeah. who used to put those people to sleep. Where you have a surgeon yeah. going, "Can I cut?" And you're like, "No, yeah. he's dying." Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, interestingly, yeah. Eric used to put my patients to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so you would sit there and just be like, uh, "Dr. McKenna, are the CD6 and CD7 yeah. mesenchymal cells ready?" Well, yeah. I remember there was a joke that was, uh, "How do you find the orthopedist or the radiologist?" And they're going the opposite direction at the code blue. So. That's exactly right. They're running. <laughs> away from the scene yeah. right yeah uh, well we used to say you know if you want if you have a dollar and you want to hide it from a surgeon or from any kind of physician there's different places you have to put it right if you want to hide it from a radiologist you tape it to a patient <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you want to hide it if you want to hide it from an orthopedic surgeon you put it in a book right? <laughs> so if you want to hide it from a plastic surgeon well you can't hide a dollar from a plastic surgeon <laughs> 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 so, uh, well, that's you, gonna... you were going down a rabbit hole there. Where yeah, we were talking the CD34, what we were talking about is the initiation of healing, right? So with the CD34, it secretes a peptide called PG2. PG2 is, is one of those keys in starting new vessel growth. Well, the way to grow hair, the way to have ED go away, the way to have stress urinary incontinence go away, the way to have your wrinkles go away, the way to have your fracture heal, the way to have your tendon remodel. No, you had me at wrinkles, ED, yeah. and hair. Okay, yeah. so, so now, so we start out, I'm treating non-union fractures, right? Well, we figure out pretty quick that if you put bone marrow concentrate, it, was, it wasn't, and there's a great study published, um, it was a limb salvage uh, patient uh, in Japan where 15 surgeries, big proximal uh, defect at the proximal tibia, and the, the general surgeon was, was livid at the orthopedic surgeons want to, to put bone marrow aspirate concentrate in the fracture because he was proving that there was no vascularity to the leg. So to backdoor the orthopedic surgeon, this was published as a case report, the vascular surgeon does this arteriogram of the lower extremity. And it shows that there's literally no collateral flow around this fracture site. And this kid basically has a limb salvage frame on his leg with this big proximal defect, two years out, multiple fasciotomies, non-usable leg, a mess score really high, needs, needs amputation. The orthopedic surgeon has, has seen all the stuff on bone marrow aspirate concentrate, wants to inject bone marrow before he takes his frame off. Eventually, as a surgeon, you become kind of emotionally connected to, you, to your work, right? The guy does not want to cut this leg off. The vascular surgeon is trying to prove it needs to come off. He does an arteriogram. The family still don't want to let cut off, so they have bone marrow injected in the fracture site. At eight weeks, they redo the arteriogram because the orthopedic surgeon, the arteriogram wasn't ordered by him. But you're starting to see new bone. The kid's having less pain. He's putting hmm. weight on the leg. And you're getting new bone formation. But they have this arteriogram sitting out there that shows no blood flow. So they redo the arteriogram, and there's all this collateral circulation around the fracture. All right, so basically for everybody listening, arteriogram is a study where it actually shows the arteries. Yeah, you put dye in a vessel, and it shows up on x-ray. And there right? was no blood flow going below where the fracture right. was. there's no dye. The dye stops, and there's this little bitty pattern, and there's this little trickle of dye and down the leg. And you guys injected something into the bone, not into the arteries. Not into the artery. Into the periosteal sleeve, the covering of the bone where, the, where, the, where there was no bone where there was this big bony defect, they put bone marrow aspirate concentrate in there. The way the bone marrow aspirate concentrate worked, it didn't become bone. 
which is what we thought. What it does is it secretes the peptides and proteins necessary to bring new blood flow, blood flow yeah. which allowed the bone to heal. Oh. So now there's this arteriogram sitting out there that shows no collateral flow. Say that saying again, that blood flow. The rule of the artery is supreme. The rule right. of the artery is supreme. A.T. Still, I'll give him a credit for that from the 1800s. Rule of the artery is supreme. Lymphatics have veto power. And that's a Dr. Graham from uh, Oklahoma State's manipulation class kind of add on there that if everything's so swollen and blood flow can't get to it, it can't heal. Yeah. So, so. you guys injected this. This is the first time you saw that bone marrow aspirate because this is going to be a great segue yeah. when we go to the next half hour where we really do jump into the stem cells. Right. We've got a uh, we'll we'll try and keep it is it at a level that we can help people because I'm getting a lot. I'll, of I'll go back to the bone bent me make straight. Like I'm being asked questions like, does it help with back? Can you? Yes. Does it help so with bone a, on bone? And so we're, we're yes. going to get to that next half All hour. Right. Yeah. But on and great papers published, right? Everyone that says, oh, there's no literature published. Again, there's been 3,500 papers published with my little catheter and the kit we designed for bone marrow aspirate. 3,500 papers published, there's never been an untoward report, there's never been a tumor, there's never been that you can't reject your own bone marrow. So this is the bone marrow aspirate injections that you guys are doing. This is the very beginning of stem very, cell research. It's the only cell in the U.S. you're allowed to call a stem cell. Wow. You cannot. So you guys leave. really, you guys literally were the first people playing around with stem cells. The trauma surgeon uh, department pulling bone marrow. Yeah, Holy not, not knowing what we were doing. We were using bone marrow aspirate concentrate for the fatty component of marrow that seemed to help fractures heal faster, which is where microfracture surgery of the knee, all this comes in my mind from, we would we do a knee scope, there's an uncovered cartilage area, we poke a couple holes in the bone marrow, in the bone to let some bone marrow leak into the knee thinking that that helped the cartilage lesion heal. It's called a microfracture. Now, it doesn't work very well. It creates a cartilaginous cap. It's not good cartilage, but it, it does heal something. But it, my thought was, when I created this catheter, if a couple drops of bone marrow makes a difference, what would, what would 60 cc's concentrated down to four or five do? That was where we started with this to inject Holy into cartilage injuries. That's where, that's where that's this whole the beginning thing began. Of that's that's the beginning cow. for me, yeah. Do you think, or do you think that uh, it's bone marrow and the stem cells that come from bone marrow are really adapt to this type of healing simply because that's where we release our red blood cells it's from? It's how your body does it. Yeah. Okay, so this is how your body heals already, right? Right. The, the, we're, not, we're not inventing a new way to make something heal. This is how the body heals. This is where those, you know, it, it, this is how God does it. Right, he sends the cell there. It secretes this protein. The vessel grows. You get new blood supply. Tendon grows. Right, this is how it works already. It's just as we get older, or if you get, you know, lymphedema, swelling. All lymph the lymphatic flow where I talked about has veto power is a big swollen leg. If you have a big swollen foot, good blood flow can't get to it. Right, so it's all about mobilizing an ankle fracture and all this stuff, so that blood flow can get to it. Because if it's real swollen, you can't put any extra water in a full glass. Right, so new water can't get to it. That old contaminated dead water sits there. You have to pour the glass out a little bit to put some new healthy water back in. That's how blood flow works. Which is why lymphedema and lipedema is so dangerous. Yeah, and has it has absolute um, control over blood flow to to the to the injured tissue. Before we dive deep into stem cells, does PRP work? I have a lot of friends sure. that do it. Yeah. So here's the deal. So um, PRP is like bone marrow light. Bone marrow. Okay. Light. Yeah. So PRP is bone marrow with no stem cells. It's it's a good growth component. It's great at it's a one time shot, right? So you when you put PRP in something, you're getting a one time shot of growth factors that limits and stops the inflammatory response from cytokines. You're not going to grow tissue. 
there's no stem cells. You're not getting a stem cell injection, which is one of the things that pushes me over the edge. Is someone, oh, I went and got stem cells from my blood. No, no, you didn't. You know, <laughs> uh, you got an injection, but but it wasn't stem cells. It's PRP, platelet-rich plasma. Now, PRP is also in bone marrow, right? But there are stem cells in bone marrow. So when you say PRP, if you got it from your whole blood, it's just PRP. If you got bone marrow aspirate concentrate, it's all the best components of PRP and stem cells. So that, that, that study I was telling you about. So here's how little, so even though they published this great study showing that bone marrow aspirate concentrate helped the complex fractures heal 50% faster and all of them healed. The ones that didn't have bone marrow, not all of them healed and they took twice as long to heal. That was published 20 years ago. Right, with bone marrow aspirate concentrate, but they knew so little about bone marrow aspirate concentrate that they spun down whole blood too in the same machine to try to give it more volume because we thought the PRP might help the bone marrow work better. When in actuality, you're already getting PRP when you spin down bone marrow. So all we were doing, literally in that study in Israel, was they were just diluting it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I would just laugh, and this is similar when you say, no, you didn't get stem cell, you got blood. This is when you and I were talking about fasting, and I've had some uh, friends that have maybe overdone it on Adderall a little bit, and they're like, yeah, I've gone three days without eating. <laughs> and, and Eric's like, that doesn't count. Yeah. Cortisol and everything. Yeah. And, it, does not and he basically made the analogy, hey, it saved some money. I was in jail all weekend. Didn't spend anything. <laughs> you know, there's a great, when you guys talked about intermittent fasting, uh, there's a great study published in Cell Metabolism last year that showed that the, 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 they're correlating it to, to longevity in mice. And the, the mice that had the longest food-free intervals actually increased their lifespan. Well, as Bring you can back. see, we started firing up, getting a lot of brain energy going on on, on that last segment. I started getting hot, and yeah. I'm wearing my Tequila 512 shirt. Nicely which done. <laughs> I believe the two people sitting in front of me um, happen to be have some ownership in it. Yeah. And, and big fans of the product. Too, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, if you're going to enjoy some tequila, you might as well have some Tequila 512. Yeah. So I'm going to fire a question, but I'm also going to take a little CBD here to regenerate my anandamide and 2-AG. Nice. Nice. Because I think I spent some there with the um, trying to keep up with Dr. McKenna. All right. <laughs> Which who would have believed that, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it bothered me when someone says stem cell expert. I always look to see who's behind me. But then, but literally, we've done over 10,000 cases in the U.S. now. So, so let me let me throw one out for you. We got a message from Victoria that says, "Can you fix bone on bone degenerative discs?" So. Here's the the short answer, and there, you know, you, you know me enough already by now to know that's probably not possible. <laughs> um, the in a good um, prospective randomized study uh, that started with just PRP, because again, bone marrow aspirate concentrate. The only reason PRP exists as a product is because we couldn't get approval for bone marrow, so we were spinning down horse blood. The equine market, you could sell PRP into. People will pay more to have their horse injected than they will their kid. And the horse has four <laughs> extremities. And so we were spinning down whole blood, created PRP while we were waiting on the FDA to approve bone marrow. Uh, whole blood is exempt, and bone marrow wasn't. And, and so to get the validations on bone marrow, a lot of PRP was created. Um, so th there you go. So um, the short answer is interdiscal injections, have already there's several great papers already published um and the most recent one uh at two years 92 percent of the patients had interdiscal injections on degenerative disc disease and and i would i would take it even a step farther um in, in that in our in our clinical practice we've done over 300 discs now um 
in, in that if you have an annular tear, I mean, a tear in the covering of the disc, that is a primary pain generator. It's a bright spot on the MRI called a high-Z lesion or high-intensity high signal. Uh, a lot of radiologists don't uh, fail to mention that, I guess. But if there's an annular tear, a high-intensity signal within the, within the disc, that alone is a dramatic pain generator. It can even cause the exact same symptoms as a herniated disc would as far as lower extremity pain and weakness because the nerve crosses that annular tear. The annular tear generates substance P, generates the cytokines, generates the exact same pain response. So there's two times of radicular pain coming from the back, leg and hip pain, radicular. So that's the old folks called sciatica. If it can be pressure caused by a big herniated disc, neuroforaminal stenosis, meaning the canal gets too tight, the facets in your back get hypertrophic, get extra large as they wear out. So there's, there's, you can have pressure, stenotic pressure on a nerve where it feels like it's just being crushed. That causes leg and hip pain and back pain. Or you can have a chemical radiculopathy created by a tear in the disc, and it feels the same. Patient can't tell the difference. But it's one of them, almost everybody always says my bulging disc. Yeah, right. it could be. Yeah, yeah. But, but but bulging discs aren't the problem because here's what we know. Here's what's already published. If I do MRIs on a lot of people that have no back and leg pain, then a lot of them have bulging discs. So um, how's it happen? How how come some people's bulging discs hurt and some people's bulging discs don't? Right. Not only that, if you experience, if you have a bulging disc, the non-operative follow-up at two years is the same as operative follow-up. If you don't have weakness, if you have pain that you can tolerate and you don't have weakness in the lower extremity, at two years, you're doing the same as the people that had a discectomy if you don't have surgery. What? Right? Wow. Yeah, Wait yeah. a minute. That's published for a long time. So we're not So if you helping. extrude a free fragment, that free fragment will absorb. Your body is a really adept at getting rid of items extruded into the canal and it will absolutely absorb uh, and, and get rid of a free fragment as long as that free fragment isn't putting so much pressure on the nerve that it decreases the blood supply from the pressure, it causes weakness in the lower extremity from the pressure, the nerve stops working, you have leg pain, you get a little foot drop, you get a little weakness, you need to have surgery. If you don't have weakness and you just have pain, what's published now is if we inject that disc, the annular tear that doesn't go away on its own will heal. And most of the time, 92% in that study, if the annular tear heals, the back and leg pain go away. 92%? 92% of the patients that had an injection didn't go on to a primary fusion. Wow. Now, now here's the other side of that. The patients that had a fusion, at five years, 30% of them had two surgeries. So if you have a fusion at one level, 30% of the time within the next five years, you're at risk of having a second surgery, either a fusion at the level above or below, or hardware removal or revision, or you get extra bone from the fusion and they have to reopen up the nerve roots, they have to do a nerve frame Every time you do surgery, the muscles of the back die a little. So the paravertebral muscles, the muscle mass. So it, when you look at someone bent forward, you know that little, it looks like a dinosaur, right? That little thing, the ridge that sticks up in the middle of your back? Sure. That's called the spinous process. The muscles that lay on each side of the spinous process have to be moved out of the way for you to do a back surgery. We used to make fun of the spine surgeons when I was a, a fellow in trauma because they only have one incision, right? It's midline and low back, right? <laughs> we had to learn all these other incisions, and spine surgeons learn, learn one. one. 
But what they don't learn that trauma surgeons learn is we make an incision that is designed to not limit the structure, function, blood supply, or nerve to the muscle we're moving. In the spine, the multifidi, that small muscle on each side of that ridge, the nerve and vessel come from the midline and the back. But we're moving that away. And so when you do an MRI of someone's back that's had back surgery, initially, the muscles on each side of that look like filet mignon. That's tenderloin, right? That's the back strap. Hey, right? we're fasting. For, for hunters. We're not talking tenderloin yeah. right now, okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm real hungry. So when you move that muscle out of the way, and you go back and you do an MRI of that back that had um, surgery, and now they're five years out, and they're having pain again. And the neurosurgeon looks at the films and goes, wow, the disc looks great, the nerve roots wide open. You just want pain meds, and there, there's no reason for you to be here. Your back's fine. Well, if you look at the MRI, though it used to look like tenderloin, now looks like prime, like, like strip steak or, or, or worse. Um, just, we call it white muscle syndrome. It, the whole thing just looks like fatty infiltration. Oh, like Arby's. Like, um, prime, <laughs> like more like prime rib, right? So there's a little bit of muscle mixed in there. There's not a diagnosis of Arby's back. Yeah, yeah you, you are fasting for way too long when you're talking about Arby's. <laughs> Roy Rogers from my generation. Hey, right? Let me ask you a, a follow-up question to that. Um, she was asking, how many injections did that take to achieve the 92%? Most of the time, it's one. One injection. One so treatment. One injection for and what we do, what we, what we do is we, we want to be more specific, right? So my, my problem with stem cell science as a whole is a lot of times patients get in the mix where they're never really diagnosed. And I, I'm a firm believer that you can't treat something if you didn't diagnose it. I, I, if I don't know what I'm treating, my chances of making it go away are pretty slim. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of stem cell injectors out there don't make the effort to actually diagnose a problem, but they're, get, they're willing to inject anything. Well, that's that, that's a very nonspecific treatment, and it kind of it, it kind of puts your your results at risk if you don't know what you're treating because you don't know what you can heal and what you can't heal. When you what we so what we do when we're doing a disc injection is I want to know that was the pain generator, right? So there's an old test that used to be the standard of care before you had a fusion. Now, because fusions are so rampant in our country. We've gotten away from more specific diagnosis on making sure that the fusion was necessary. And they do it based on MRI criteria. Well, MRI criteria is not very specific because you can have three discs that look really bad on MRI and the patient not have any back pain. Or you can have three discs that look really bad on MRI and only one of those discs be causing the patient's primary pain. And you don't know. So what you do, or what they used to do a lot and what not a lot of people do anymore, is they do a discogram. You literally put a needle within the disc of the back while the patient's asleep. You kind of bring them up into twilight a little bit. And you inject dye into the disc to increase interdiscal pressure and see if it leaks. So if the dye has a tear and the dye leaks out or it has a really disrupted pattern and it causes concordant pain. So there's three things to make a discogram positive. So let me get this straight. When you guys are looking at a bad MRI, you have a patient that hurts, right. they've got bulging discs, they've got this, you go to each disc and see? So what you do is, the, the, the ones that look the worst, right, especially ones that have an annular tear, we'll put that patient asleep, we'll put a needle in, in you know, at least the, the... And this is different than a myelogram. Oh, absolutely. A okay. myelogram is just putting some dye within the canal. Okay. Right? It just looks for pressure. It looks for areas that are, are tight, right? The discogram is positive if three things happen. 
it, it needs to cause pain. So if I inject your disc and you get this nice little pattern within the disc like a jelly donut, so the disc is kind of like a big jelly donut, right? The middle part of that is the consistency of like crab. The outer part of it is, is big fibrotic, thick, ropey type tissue. When you tear the rope, the crab can kind of leak out and put some pressure on it, and your body kind of scars that in. So it doesn't often generate a big free fragment, but it generates a smaller canal. And myelogram will show that. But discogram you're injecting into the disc. When you put dye in the middle of the jelly donut, if it doesn't have a disrupted pattern, it doesn't leak everywhere, and it doesn't cause pain, that's not a pathologic disc. Even if it looks black on MRI, even if it looks like it's herniated, if I inject dye in it and you have no pain, it's negative, right? A lot of negative discs are fused. That's wow. why people. That's why not a lot of people. Right, so that's why. That's what happens when someone doesn't get better. Okay, so you just covered something that. So yesterday, I had a friend text me. Um, he's like, "Hey, give me the name of a good back surgeon. My back's hurting." And I'm like, "Well, we gotta." I'm like, "What is it? You know, are you looking? Is this something that's chronic thing? You start asking questions like, yeah. "Is this a rehab thing? Is this whatever?" And his response was, "I've been cut enough. I'd prefer to avoid it." And then yeah. you start realizing, "Oh my gosh, wait a minute. There's a lot of times well, it's." You got to get the diagnosis right, right? Because there's a lot of pain generators in the back. Uh, the the facet joint can cause pain. The muscle deterioration after surgery causes secondary pain because that muscle that we kill, that that multifidi muscle on each side of that ridge down the middle of your back, as that goes away, that's the primary posterior support of the little facet joints on the side, and it ends up being the primary support for the SI joints, both sides of the back of your hip. So all these people that have fusions or have a laminectomy. A lot of them end up with, about five years later, their back's hurting again, their facet joints hurt, and they, so we inject their facets and do some epidurals. Now, you're talking not stem cell injections. Not stem cells. Now, this yeah. is traditional medicine, right? And then the, it's, it's down into their SI joints. Now they're getting SI joint injections. It, all you're doing is kind of chasing the rabbit of deterioration of the muscle mass that was killed at the time of the laminectomy. So what we do with that patient is you take the, the dead paravertebral muscles, just like we would if you have a big disrupted tendon. In 2013, we published a study where 10 centimeter mass in the middle of Achilles, we didn't reconstruct the Achilles. I injected cells in it, it completely reformed. And the most amazing part is we actually published the study 11 weeks later because she had no pain and was playing tennis again after being out of the sport for 10 years. At 32 weeks, she's English. At 32 weeks, she comes back over to this country. We're having dinner because she wanted to take me. My girls were big fans, and they wanted. To, we, she agreed to go to dinner. So we, we go to dinner, and she says, you know, um, Dr. McKenna, my bump is gone. I'm like, what? She says, you know, the bump, my mass, it's gone. So I'm crawling around the floor at Brio's in South Lake trying to look at this, <laughs> much to my daughter's chagrin, right? Um, so, but she's right, the mass is completely gone. So I said, look, do you mind if we get MRIs of both your tendons while you're in town? I said, no, that'd be lovely. So we get MRI. So we'd already published the paper that at 11 weeks we'd healed this disrupted 10 centimeter mass that had been there for a decade in Achilles. And this no 10 surgery. centimeter mass you keep referring to is basically scar tissue. It's all scarred in tendon. Like it's like the rope comes undone, it's a big frayed up knot, right? Well, that frayed out knot hurts and it's a mass. And she never had it fixed because no one would ever promise her a result. And, and they wouldn't kept, promise it because? Because you, you can't promise a result when you're fixing a tendon that doesn't have very good blood supply. The blood complications blood the complication of Achilles tendon surgery is, is what ruined Dan Marino's career, right? So we, we can't make it heal. Well, we can, but you have to do less, not more. Matter of fact, there's a lot of move in medicine now <laughs> to go away from operative intervention into Achilles tendons and just go into functional bracing because the results are about the same. 
as far as return to sport and and, and pain relief. So, so I might as well I might as well ask you this because you always hear this. So if, there's so many physicians at the hospital that are mid that are early 40s trying to get out there and they go and they join a rec soccer league and they yeah. blow their Achilles and I see yeah. them wounded warriors. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a it's a common injury. Do you operate on a torn Achilles? It depends on how much retraction there is and how acute it is. Um, sometimes we'll do a very minimally invasive, limited approach to kind of reapproximate the tendons wrap it in a graft and inject it with cells and get those patients moving. Previously, this was a six to 12 month kind of thing. I don't even keep people in a brace longer than the first couple of weeks. Matter of fact, wow. in the patient we're talking about, I never braced her, kept her in regular shoe wear. At 32 weeks, when she shows back up with the normal size tendon, we redo the MRI. You can't tell which side's hurt. So what we didn't know. And what that was, was one it? injection, one, one injection, stem cell one, injection. One treatment. And what we wow. didn't know, that wasn't even part of my hypothesis, right? My hypothesis was, I'm going to get rid of the inflammatory tissue. I'm going to help the, get rid of some of the fibrotic scarring that's painful. And I'm going to help give a better quality of tissue within the tendon so she hurts less. What I didn't know that those cells were capable of doing is completely remodeling the tendon. So that 10 centimeter mass remodeled. When you look at an MRI, they refer to it as heterogenic, meaning lots of signal, disorganized fibers or homogeneity, which is nice black laminar collagen fibers, right? She had complete homogeneity of the tendon that we had injected. And exactly, so the tendon on her opposite side is 2.4 centimeters around. The tendon on the side we had injected before was 10. Now it's 2.4 centimeters around. I could not have done that surgically. Because surgically, if I open it up, I'll try to make it the same size as the other side. But part of the healing is either atrophy or hypertrophy, it kind of scars and gets a little bigger. So you get a knot. Without surgery, her body was able to remodel that tendon exactly the same size as the other side. So we actually published the follow-up as a letter to the editor of the first journal that published the 11-week follow-up showing it was healed. Because even though when we, we, we stopped short, like when it healed, we were like, hey, look at us, right? All right, so I think this is a, a good time to geek out again. So you're saying you inject this into this not I got under ultrasound i take the i take the needle go all the way across the tendon and kind of inject you know, look i'm a i'm a i worked as a kid right so i worked in the oil field my parents had a, a tong service and landscaping i i worked it wasn't like now in south lake where they bring in an insta yard and lay down all the grass right? <laughs> when i was a kid if you had a pallet of grass you had like an acre out of that yeah right we broke it in little pieces you you sprigged the yard Right? Sprigs, yeah. So that's what we do with the tendon. I'll take that big 10 centimeter mass. I'll take a three and a half inch needle under ultrasound, go all the way across the mass and kind of inject as I come back. And so you're injecting the stem cells as you come back. Create a pathway through that tissue to kind of sprig the yard with new tissue. It, it, the way I think of it is you're kind of, you have all this dead yard and you're trying to bring some, some more grass back to it's like it. Some so, creeping substitutes. So I exactly want to know, right. I want a little bit more, you say, to create new tissues. So the stem cells go, oh, this is an Achilles. Let's become Achilles. Yeah. And oh, by the way, there's no blood supply here. And oh, by the way, this is a lot of fibrotic tissue here. And it's so, under a lot of stress. That's what I want to know. How does it get rid of the fibrotic tissue? I get that we've got these. The collagen fibers are all there, right? It's disorganized, doesn't have much blood supply. You're literally repopulating an acellular area with tissue that secretes the peptides and proteins necessary to cause cellular infiltration with new blood supply. Microangiogenesis. Okay, the so growth these of cells new vessels. Start growing blood vessels, and then they also send out the cytokines proteins. that 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 get rid of the fibroblasts. 
creating the remodeling scar of fibroblastic tissue. Wow. So it's not just that it's growing this new place. It's smart enough to say we need to get rid of this so that we have room. We need to increase blood flow over here. So it's, it's and almost, oh by the way, this tendon needs to be two point four centimeters around. We need to remodel it and shrink it down. And we didn't do that. Right, and that's published in a, mo a lot of studies. Look, there's a rotator cuff study, and this is what drives me bat crazy. You can use foul language. I'm on sorry, show I, didn't, yeah, I, I left out that word. <laughs> <laughs> My mom may listen, and so I don't want to use that word because she will be horrified. Um, but what drives me crazy is when people talk about, oh, there's no studies. There is 10-year follow-up on a rotator cuff study. So in 2002 to 2004, Dr. in Paris named Phil Hornigal, because we didn't have the kit approved in the U.S. yet, used our kit with our tear site to create bone marrow aspiroconcentrate and inject into rotator cuff repairs. All of the patients went to surgery for a full thickness rotator cuff repair. Um, 45 with cells, 45 without, right? The, what's published in every long-term rotator cuff study, and you never hear your orthopedic surgeon tell you this, but orthopedics dirty little secret, that surgery has a 30% failure rate. So what's published in every long-term rotator cuff study is only about 70% of those patients get better. And Dr. Hornigal was destined in his mind, he thought there's no way that my study is gonna look like that because all surgeons think their results are better than they are. In my experience, that, that means you've done one. Um, <laughs> and so I hate that, right? In medicine, when you say time after time means two, and in my experience means you've done one in my series means you've done three um so so dr hornigal if was you like, do four you're gonna publish it yeah if four four is a long-term follow-up randomized four, perspective the, uh, lecture yeah. series yeah. <laughs> four i'm speaking at the academy um i've done more than all the other guys uh so so phil so he was sure his his data was gonna be better but in what he did he, they did mri as part of the french healthcare system so that it's all you know all that all those patients are that they don't heal, you're still liable for them. It's all one payer group, right? Socialized medicine. So at six months on MRI, the ones that didn't have bone marrow, only 67% were healed. Oh. oh, same as the U.S., 30% failure rate. And the ones that had bone marrow aspiroconcentrate, 100% were healed. So 45 healed at six months on MRI. The only difference, bone marrow aspiroconcentrate. Now, 67% of the 45 without. Now in Paris, and we could never do this in the U.S., in the U.S. that means the study is over, those, the 33% that didn't heal need to be injected, right? <laughs> Not in Paris. In Paris, they continue the study for 10 more years with multiple MRIs. At 10-year follow-up, only 44% of the patients that didn't have cells are still healed. 87% of the patients that, did, that had cells are, are healed. Wow. It's twice as much. Twice so as this much. Is, this is amazing. Like, and, this and, that, was, and, this, and this was That was published ago? in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow in 2014. 2014. This is going on. Yeah. And we've got both objective and subjective data and the outcomes. And functional outcome data. And I was just going to say, and the outcomes yeah. and the safety data. Yeah. This is exactly like what we were talking about before in the cannabidiol industry, the photobiomodulation. But you're told that doesn't exist, right? Like, like there's no reason to put there's stem cells in the cuff doesn't work. Oh my God! I mean, other than ten year follow up, what do you want? I mean, so here's the real issue: those were all patients that were taken to surgery for full thickness tears. What about the patient with the partial thickness tear yeah. that we're operating on? If they don't need a decompression, if they don't have some big spurt pushing around on the cuff. Most of our patients, we inject under ultrasound and, they, and it gets better. They go away. All right, so I want to take this opportunity to look because I'm getting questions about where, well, number one, 
one that, that's popped up a couple times. Um, in in your clinic, do you guys accept insurance for the surgery part? Sure. Yeah. So the the I'm a traditional orthopedic surgeon still, right? I mean, I still do 50 surgeries a month and see 400 patients, um, and I have a PA and and nurse practitioner, and so. Um, matter of fact, I, I still take Medicare uh, because I still but, do total but, needs. But does insurance but pay for the stem cell? Insurance does not pay for the stem cell injection part okay. of this. And, and not only that, if it's a non-surgical patient, if it's someone that just wants stem cells injected to the cuff, the insurance doesn't pay any part of that. If I'm doing stem cells at the time of your cuff repair, a lot of times we get the bone marrow is kind of part of the surgery itself. Okay. So I know that you're an orthopedist, but can as we go head to toe as we're closing down this, where can stem cell help when you start looking at a body? Well, here's the cool part. So I have a, a business partner that's way smarter than me and way more money and been doing it for and, and made way more money than I'll ever not make. Um, and he followed me and listened to what we were doing for years. I've taken his kid plays at Kansas basketball with pretty elite program. Um, I've taken care of a lot of athletes that are personal friends of theirs. And I've taken care of his wife and his kids. Brian is a, you know, if you can, if you can, what about, what about hair and face and, uh, you know, all these other problems? Because the PRP product that we help create, right, is used for hair growth for 10 years. There's a book actually called The O-Shot that's published on injecting the periurethra Robin Benson's the one that told us about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Charles Reynolds, um, the guy that is, uses our kit, the PRP kit from our tear site, and just uses PRP, no stem cells. And it works. But if you put stem cells periurethral, at two years, the stress urinary incontinence is still gone compared to a bladder sling. Matter of fact, we've injected patients now for the for stress urinary incontinence that have had three bladder slings, still had stress urinary incontinence. You do a periurethral injection, you inject the clitoral tissue, the superior vaginal wall, anorgasmia goes away. Women become sexually mature again as far as their, their orgasmic response and the stress urinary incontinence go away, then cough, laugh, or sneeze, go to a movie. ED was published in 2009. Now we'll get back. But post so basically, anywhere in the body. Yeah. Wow. Anywhere that has a blood supply problem or, or failure of the tissue. There's a wow. lot of applications. We'll get to that and the FDA problems next. We're back with the last half hour, and I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time with a whole lot of intros. We are going to start off. Dr. Brown, you had some questions during the break. You were going to ask Wade just the applications and Panama. Yeah, so basically we, I was asking you what different places could be, and you said any place where there's blood supply. And then I remember when I was watching the Joe Rogan show which yeah. with, with your business partner, yeah. Neil Reardon, you guys uh, uh, had a clinic in Panama, and then they were talking disease states. So, right. I mean, we're not saying anything that's going to step on the FDA. You're not recommending it. But what diseases have they done, especially in Panama? So Neil has really good, uh, and, and Neil's a, a PhD, um, not a clinical physician. Um, so he doesn't have that patient care responsibility in the state. So, but and, as a clinical um, professional, um, he designed a process that in Panama for the administration of IV cells. And the best use of IV cells, like we've talked about before, it's about what they secrete, right? So autoimmune disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, um, MS, autism. I, I think Neil published a series recently of like 2,000 or 2,500 MS patients that have no brain and spinal cord lesions that are more than a couple years out. And there's some fairly famous local um, MS patients that... Uh, we're pretty well disabled in a golf cart and a wheelchair and are running around on the sidelines coaching football again. Um, 
you know, when when from Neil, IV injection from IV therapy, letting these letting these letting cells these get caught cells. up in the pulmonary parenchyma, right? Uh, I think Neil's protocols are like 120 million cells, 20 million cells per dose, and five injections over a period of several days. He's um, been incredibly adept at treating autoimmune disorders. Um, now, there's some of these disorders that you have to continue to treat. I mean, you know, one-time treatment, you'll burn through those cells eventually, and those cells aren't going to give you all new cellular volume, and so you'll have to get some of those that have to be retreated, especially with, like, rheumatoid or, or uh, some of the more aggressive, like uh, pulmonary fibrosis he's treated. Um, there's actually Okeanos, a heart hospital in uh, uh, the Bahamas, that's been treating uh, heart failure for a decade. Um, with this stem cell? With, with uh, they're using a different cell. So Neil uses cultured cells from the umbilical cord on the Wharton's jelly in um, uh, Okeanos down in the Bahamas. It, currently, what they're doing is they're taking a, 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 con- a, a construct from bat called SVF, digesting the tissue, culturing those cells, and injecting them IV and curing heart failure. Now, heart failure has been cured for a long time. So. There's a study. Heart failure has been cured for a long time. Yeah, just a side note. Yeah. I remember going to your clinic about uh, three years ago. We uh, just stopped by for a visit, and the, you were holding in your hand the uh, the increase in ejection fraction specifically to uh, to CHF. Yeah. So so there's there's actually a study published um, uh, called Symbiosis, and it's a rat study out of Harvard. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they took uh, cardiac failure that, that was induced chemically in mice connected the vascular system to a non-disease mass, the heart failure went away. So the... Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. They connected the vascular, the vascular system. system. Did they sew two mice together? Yeah, yeah. yeah what? Yeah. Literally, yeah. It's called symbiosis, right? So the That's disease... That's a very pleasant way to say we're going to yeah. do some Frankenstein yeah. mixing here. Well, here's, here's the way... Here's the, here's the problem. Here's what has to happen. The mice that didn't have the disease has to be able to sense the heart failure and still be healthy enough to secrete the cells necessary to treat the heart failure. Right? It's like that new Samsung. The disease you charge your phone yeah. if you put that's, yours on. That's mine. exactly right. That's, so how, that's the, how the movie Human Centipede started. Yeah, so, I think. The, so, so the disease mice wasn't able to secrete the right cells to treat his heart failure. I just want to say that I had an over under uh, of how many episodes we would get in until Eric would bring up the movie Human Centipede. Human Centipede. Yeah. Yeah. It, took, it took exactly. Do we meet it? <laughs> nice. <laughs> you should have. We, we do this again. We'll, 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 we'll be talking about zombies and shit later. Um, but that, that study was published a long time ago. So, so at the time, um, not didn't even know why the heart failure went away. Now we've actually isolated the peptides and proteins necessary that were secreted to make the heart failure go away. It, there's a, a, a mass study done on, you know, if you want to talk about just one beneficial effect of stem cells that, that's way underappreciated, it's the prevention and, of infection and treatment of infected wounds. The, there's a study done out of San Francisco where they took uh, mice and iatrogenically um, and created six different types of nosocomial pneumonia, what you would get in the hospital. Right. They didn't treat the mice with antibiotics. They took bone marasperate concentrate, made it as a, as a slurry, treated it with a spray, pulmonary spray, and cured all the pneumonia in all six different types of mice. Then they, <laughs> they took the alveolar, they sacrificed the mice, take the alveolar washings, and could not culture out the bacteria on the alveolar washings. There's a, there's a peptide called LL37 that is secreted by the cells from bone marrow 
that is extremely um, um, bactericidal and, and helps modulate T cell function. So stem cells can only do three things, right? Well, look, hold on, I'm gonna stop you right there because I, um, I have a friend who's a, he's a bodybuilder peptide expert and we got to talking that you know, a lot of the in the bodybuilding community people are using peptides. So the yeah. way you're are these are we talking different peptides? Can I just take the CHF peptide and fix well, that's, CHF? That's, that's that's the that's the that's the the big intellectual property grab right now, right? Everyone trying to patent a peptide. My my theory on that is, you want to listen to the orchestra or trombone. You know, Do you I want mean, to have a full spectrum or an isolate? Yeah, I'm just telling you, the, yeah. the stem cell, I don't have to tell the cell what peptide to produce. It knows, it right? It knows, yeah. So if I, put the, if I concentrate the cells and put them where they go, your body knows what it needs. It's the difference between you, if you're hungry, going to 7-Eleven or going to Central Market. Where are you going to have the most choices? I think when you start isolating different peptides and proteins to give to people, you're limiting what the body's really capable of or what it may need. Mm -hmm. Because it may need some of the other cofactors in there. So you want it to have central market of choices, not not seven eleven, right? That's and a great analogy. So yeah. I think I think that's I, I think that's crucial. So you've talked about uh, your experience in and uh, making sure that people get the right stem cells, making sure that a diagnosis is important, making certain that uh, people know that uh, you, you can yeah, treat I, different diseases. What is it that you feel the ne next generation is? You'd mentioned exosomes before yeah, we started so, here. so I think the way to differentiate yeah. so that we get rid of some of the the guys that think and you know and god bless the doctors look i know how hard it is to make a living as a physician it i i'm never i'm not throwing rocks at all because the doctors are told stuff and and they don't know right but most of what's being injected out there called a stem cell is completely acellular and has no stem cells in it and for the most part doesn't have a whole lot of growth growth factors the most popular amniotic graft on the market right now has between 50 and 150 picograms of pge2 PG2 is that one compound we're talking about that helps drive initial formation of new blood supply. Um, and that company is publicly traded and it's down from about $12 a share to about four. So it shouldn't be too hard for everyone to know what I'm talking about, hopefully. But um, the, <laughs> the graph that Dr. Reardon and I designed, we got that graph, uh, an injectable amnion, up to about 800 picograms of PG2. Okay, oh. now what did, the, what did this other company that, that the stock dropped, what was it? How many picograms did they have? About anywhere from 50 to 150 so there's not even really good standardization right so with different different doses we get somewhere between 50 picograms 150 picograms uh, the graph uh, amniotic therapies uh, the company we had started back in the day got about 800 picograms of pg2 the reason for neil and i's falling out where we're not in the same clinic anymore is because a new graph came out and as, as the as the physician you know the one that actually has to treat the patient um, I'm not using the graph that has my name on it anymore. So, so the new graph, a company out of uh, Grapevine, has about 3,200 picograms of PG2. 3,200. Wow. You guys so, had 800. Yeah. And, so, and memetics that, uh, what, what, did I say that? Um, <clears throat> memetics. The, <laughs> the, 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 the original, the largest maker graph, has somewhere between 50 and 150. Hey, let me just, I mean, not to go down this rabbit hole, sure. but I'm impressed by this. You said that the reason why Neil and I are no longer business partners yeah. is because of this one thing where basically somebody came out with a superior product your change. name's on the yeah. other one yeah yeah and it's unfortunate for me right because financially you know it would make sense well to... it's gonna it's gonna affect the friendship that you have it's gonna affect the business oh yeah and it's gonna i mean many i'll say this almost all doctors i know do not have that level of humility to go 
my name's on this one, but wow, good job, guys. Yeah. Let's start. Let's start treating the people the right way. You know what? I, my life is so uncomplicated. If you just do the right thing, I, I, hmm. I literally, um, I, I look. I'm not. I don't always make the best decisions in my personal life. I'm not. I mean, I'm a mess, right? But <laughs> when when it comes to taking care of patients, I've always been laser focused on making sure I do the right thing and and try to put what's their best interest first. And they're trusting me. I feel very medieval about that doctor-patient relationship. When a patient's asleep. It's like you're a knight with a sword standing by the bed, ready to smote anyone, ready to hurt them, right? Sure. I mean, I mean, I mean, you're their only protector. They're trusting you to put themselves in a completely flaccid, asleep state, and counting on the fact that you're going to make them better when they wake up. And, and, and you know, they we, have to wake up though. Remember? Yeah, well, Aaron, yeah, Eric has yeah. to take care. Of, but, <laughs> but that that oath we took, still, I mean, that you know, PhDs don't take that oath, right? They're they're allowed to just be businessmen. As a physician, you really, you really can't. I mean, that there, there's a lot, there's a lot of way better business people in medicine than me. Uh, um, but I don't, there's, I don't think there's a lot of people that have worked as hard to hone their surgical skills and the decision making as I try to make it patient specific when I take care of. Do people. you feel like that uh, stem cell nomenclature will change more towards the exosomal? Yeah. So here's what we're trying to do, right? okay. because I think that it's important to set the good products apart from the bad products. Right. I, I always use an analogy that you would never pay Kobe beef prices for hamburger, but people are. Right in stem cells because you don't know if it's Kobe beef or hamburger. But the way to tell is we need to start talking about what's in it or what's produced by it, which is exosomes. The reason the stem cell works or the way a stem cell works is exosomal secretion, growth factors. So we talk about growth factor secretions and quantifying how much growth factors is in this, how much growth factors is secreted by this. That's the difference between bone marrow and PRP, right? PRP is one-time shot growth factors. Bomer is an injection of cells, one-time shot of growth factors, but those cells continue to produce growth factors for 16 to 20 weeks. Lots of PRP shots if you give a bone marrow injection, not one, because those cells stay metabolically active. With amniotic tissue added to it, so as a tissue graph, now we have day one cells. So if I use your bone marrow, your bone marrow has seen UV light, radiation, everything you've ever done. All your stress is, has had an effect on your quality of your bone marrow. Amniotic tissue hasn't seen any of that. It's day one tissue. Now it's stupid, but it's really strong. It produces a lot of stuff, but it doesn't know what to do with it. Your bone marrow is the director of the play. It can be, you know, a movie in a warehouse with five guys that everyone dies, or it can be Lawrence of Arabia, you know, 100,000 people in the cast. The larger the cast of characters, the more that's possible. And that's what Amnion does. It gives you all the growth. The analogy I use all the time is if, if you're moving, you want a guy like me stacking the truck, because I'll turn the sofa upside down, I'll put the t table on the floor, I'll get, I'll get everything in one truck. But I want a bunch of 17-year-olds helping me get all the furniture out of the house. But if they stack the truck, you'll make five trips, right? Bone marrow stacks the truck. Amnion delivers you a real high concentration of growth factors so and exosomes. Okay. You actually lost me there for a second. So are, are you saying that the amniotic origin of these cells is the superior one or the bone? In arrow? growth factor number only, right? So when it comes down to just pure amount of exosomes right at the beginning, your bone marrow is kind of limited sometimes. If you're 70, right, if you had radiation therapy, you smoked ever, um, if you drink a lot, you know, so your cells 
You I like how you looked at Eric when you did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he did get me involved in 512 like 10 years ago, so he may be responsible for my lime affinity. Uh, <laughs> I tell people all the time I don't drink. I'm just addicted to lime. So. <laughs> the, uh, um, but, but all that has an effect, right? Age has an effect. So you do not have as many cells as you were born with. So do you guys mix the two is what I'm getting at? Well, like, now that would they, be the, 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 the FDA would hate the wording on that. I will inject the two in the same location. Uh. Right? So I'll use your bone marrow to get all the initiation and the healing started because it's the smart cell. And it's the stem cell. Right? If we're doing a stem cell injection, it's bone marrow. If I'm using amnion, I don't talk about it as a stem cell injection. It's growth factors. It's an amniotic tissue graft because that's the way the FDA says it has to be worded. I'm injecting an amniotic tissue graft into an injury. Now... We've used amniotic tissue since 1910. So the year Marconi invented the radio was the year the first amniotic tissue was paper published in medicine for burns and corneas. But it was dad, right? But it helped burns heal and it helped corneas heal. Now, we don't have to kill the amnion. We can sterilize it. This is where genetic testing is coming so cool because now we do a genetic swab of the mom, the baby, the membrane. We know that that graft doesn't have the gene for cancer someday, let alone any disease now, right? So genetic testing made it where I can take this graft, not have to irradiate it, not have to kill it. I can freeze it down to minus 80. I can make sure it's sterile. We can wait for the cultures to get back. The way to test contamination in graft is um, endotoxins, right? So sterile water has 0 0.050 endotoxins or 0 0.054. That's qualified as sterile. Our graph has 0 0.050, so it's more sterile than sterile water. But it's live, healthy tissue that your body cannot have an allergic reaction to. Amnion is completely immune-privileged. It's what protects mommy and baby from each other, mm -hmm. right? And it's really good at that. But it also secretes all the growth factors necessary to help you become a baby. Now, we don't want baby. I don't need anything fetal. I need maternal. So the amniotic membrane, the placenta, is maternal tissue. Everything that comes out of mommy after the baby, those are the cells I need to help you heal. Because I don't want you to turn into, I mean, there's some studies out there where they took maternal, uh, fetal stem cells, injected them in the back, and guys grew teeth out of it, right? A teratoma. Well, you're never going to get tumor formation from So Mel Gibson wasn't tissue. that far off about growing a mouth out of the side of your face. Hey, man. Well, that. Mel Gibson's a big fan, right? So we, yeah. I mean, Mel went on Joe Rogan and told him I cured his back. You know, I mean, he, we, so I'm not speaking out of turn to say that uh, when he went on Rogan and said, you know, we cured his back in South Lake, that, you know, we must have done something pretty, I mean, he had three level, I mean, he had, he had significant issues. All right, so now, this is a perfect time to sit there and get into why in the world are we not doing this? Yes, Everywhere. The FDA's been an issue, right? Well, yeah, and it's the FDA is a huge issue because of the way the drug company FDA paradigm works. Um, we're the only country where you spend $5 million to get a job that makes 60000 a year. Mm -hmm. Where does that $5 million come from, right? Um, in 2008, and I don't know what happened in 2008, but in 2008 something politically happened where the FDA was less than 20% of the size it is today. And it didn't really govern tissue graph. Fat, taking stromal vascular fraction, digesting it, culturing it, wasn't a big deal before then. 
Those were we could get the stem cells, and they weren't. They're not the best stem cell in the world, and Bomer wasn't even really regulated. So, it wasn't the best stem cell in the world, but it was readily available. We knew how to get it, and digesting it was against the law. And now digestion of the tissue is qualified as more than minimally manipulative to the cell and it's against the law. And we can't culture it. We can't expand the fat as a, as a subset by itself isn't a great graft unless you grow it. Sure. If you get a lot more cells, it can be viable, but it's not good just with the I mean, it doesn't do much. It's pretty inert. So where's the, where's the future going to go with the FDA and the recognition well, of the Well, we have advances? to politically change the environment, right? We have to make it where every congressman and senator isn't put in place by a drug company. Um, Is that what's holding you back? I mean, because I think what's holding, you know, what when we had, um, who's our guest that we that talked about policy? Oh, uh, Joy? Joy. When we had Joy on, it's a lot of misinformation. Basically, it's old archaic laws that carried over that still listed hemp as this Schedule One. In this well, case, is it to, misinformation? Man, I, would, it? I would love to think that, but I will tell you that when um, when ninety percent of Google's ad revenue comes from Viagra and Cialis and uh, statins and Humira, Next that destroys your immune system. Um, if you if we publish a paper and you don't know where to put the comma, you're not finding it, and. I, it's not an artificial moving us down the ladder. I mean, I, I have to feel like that, you know, when a drug company puts something out, it's way at the top of the food chain, even if you do a stem cell product. Same way with uh, hemp and CBD. If they make it a drug, it's going to, you know, it'll it'll get through it really quick. If, you, if it's homeopathic or you can grow it in your backyard, all of a sudden it's a class one drug. The U.S. government used to pay people to grow hemp. I mean, there's an old commercials, Rope Wins Wars. The federal government during the World War was paying farmers to stop growing corn and soy and grow hemp because we needed ropes. Right. Ropes win wars, right? And you know, somehow with prohibition, we got tied into that. And then when they repealed it, it didn't get repealed. Right. But it just got bundled in with alcohol during prohibition. That's what happened. But the legalities of it, the regulatory part of it, is because that's about when drug companies started to get popular. Medical school was started by the Rothschilds who, oh, by the way, owned the first drug company. So they had to teach guys how to write their drug. So, I mean, you know, it's not a conspiracy, but. Well, well, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about somebody, if somebody's listening to this and they're in a wheelchair with MS, yeah, looking at a drug that's costing 10,000 a month. Right, that's more, not more. Really the average cost of an MS patient in the US is $290,000 a year. Neil's treated MS in Panama for a decade and and has complete resolution of a lot of patients. I mean, if you go to patients for ethical use of stem cells, if you go to a lot of the support groups out there on the internet for MS and for stem cell use, those are all patients that Neil's treated. And what's patients so cool, that we've treated at the clinic. Right? What's so cool is when things like this open up and it allows people, like the article that I brought up where they were culturing these stem cells in CBD and yeah. in polyphenols, then the science can start expanding on itself. Yeah. Then we can start looking at this. And yeah. I, I get depressed a little bit because the science is so already out there. I mean, it's so hard to find a clinical study on the use of bone aspirate concentrate in any part of the body that's not already written. The book, The O-Shot by, by Dr. Runnels, was just using PRP, that was published a decade ago. Hair growth with PRP, decade ago. The vampire facelift with PRP, decade ago. Now with bone marrow concentrate and amion, you can always, you know, it ups the ante quite a bit. ED, we were talking a minute ago. 
Erectile dysfunction in 2009, a paper was published in 12 out of 12 males, 70 years old, that didn't respond to orals. Status post-prostatectomy, bone marrow, 60 cc's, condensed down to six, three cc's in each side of the corpus cavernosum. And by the way, that doesn't hurt. It's not some giant painful shot. It's a, like a skin prick. Not, not to be, <laughs> you know, you can say you're a skin prick, but you can't, never mind. Um, <laughs> so we're talking a fairly pain, fairly painless injection. Uh, 10 out of those 12 males at two years are still having spontaneous erections. Now, so that was the cure for ED in status post-prostatectomy males without drugs in a one-time treatment with two-year follow-up with zero side effects, and that was 70-year-old bone marrow post-radiation, wow. so not the best cells ever, right? Yeah, but let's clarify. There's a little and that was bit, published in the Journal of Urology. I don't want, I don't want, I, I could just see some, I got some pretty tough patients. I could just see some guy yeah. trying to pound his femur going, yeah. I need this bone marrow. Yeah, no. so that's, it works a little more complicated than that. <laughs> so you need, you need to go to somebody you can trust too, because you had mentioned also in the past, and I've even heard from people who said, well, I've had stem cells injected, and, and then I would didn't say, well, yeah, it didn't work, it didn't and work. it turns out that they had used local. Yeah. Expand well, on okay, that. Okay, so yeah, this, is my, this is another pet peeve, right? And I have, unfortunately, I guess I have a lot, a growing, a growing fortitude, a growing fortress of, of, of pet peeves. And you can watch it all day. If you watch stem cell injection on the internet, go to YouTube. The, the toxic dose of local anesthetic, epinephrine, or corticosteroids, all corticosteroids, triamcinolone, dexamethasone, kenalog, bupivacaine, marcaine, lidocaine, epi, the amount that's safe on a stem cell injection is zero. So what does it do to the stem cells? It lyses them and destroys the cell wall. So wow. you destroy them on contact, right? So, so in culture, none of these cells make it through the first hour if you add a drop of lidocaine to your culture platter, right? So when you see someone get a stem cell injection, quote unquote, and they, and they add lidocaine, local anesthetic, or any steroid in the knee, you killed everything. So you turned what could have been a stem cell injection into some growth factors. I mean, you, know, you don't unravel all the proteins with that injection. We destroy all the cell walls. So wow. you're no longer getting a stem cell injection. It's just growth factor with no differentiated cells, right? right? Okay. Yeah. So it may make you a little bit better, but it's not going to grow tissue. You're not going to grow cartilage from that. Sure. Because there's no cells. You weren't given a stem cell injection. You were given a stem cell injection right up until you put local anesthetic or steroid around it, and it kills everything. Do you see the future of this as being a mix between the amniotic and the, pers and the patient's own bone marrow? I think the, the well, that's what's legal. Right, so so right now that that's all we have, and that's what's legal in the states, um, and we do, and we would never culture bone marrow because you can you can grow tumors if you get about five cell passes with bone marrow aspirate concentrate, you will sell your expansion. You can get some some mutagenic component of that uh, that you don't get with postnatal tissue. By the way, as you culturally expand postnatal tissue, you don't have the mutagenic potential or or, or meaning to form a tumor or cancer that you do with with uh, bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Um, but no, I think that the future would be um, a graph created from the umbilical tube that also has the stromal tissue. Uh, there's a cell, there's a cell, uh, stem cell now that when we were in medical school wasn't a stem cell. It was an undifferentiated mononuclear endothelial cell. It's in every capillary bed. It's actually the most numerous 
stem cell in the, humor, in the human body. It's in every capillary bed you have. And that cell is called a pericyte. And a pericyte wasn't a pericyte five years ago. A pericyte is a stem cell. And that's a cell that is the first cell to see a wound. It's the first cell to drive growth factors in. It's the first cell to cause the hemopoietic or the CD34 cell to come into the, the wound. The pericyte, if we could turn a graph from umbilical tissue that involved that cell, that we could culturally expand. I'm sorry, if you can make a graph from umbilical tissue and that tissue? Yeah. So the, the umbilical, the amnion's the lining of the umbilical cord. It's the outer, it's a covering. The stromal tissue, the umbilical cord has three vessels in it. The, what's being done right now in most places in the world is from Wharton's jelly. It's the jelly around those three vessels. That's where so there's some stem cells. But they're not the best. There's, so people talk about cord blood. There's no, there's no stem cells or cord blood. Cord blood is undifferentiated blood. It's good, but there's no stem cells. The stem cells are in the stromal tissue, the perivascular tissue, the lining, the collagen fibers. That's where those stem cells are trapped. So this is where a lot of confusion comes in. Because I even had a friend that actually I think he um, interviewed and the, you know, the question was brought up and there's so much confusion with it yeah. that everybody thinks it's cord blood that's going yeah, on. And it's not. Yeah, there's no cord blood. Look, uh, I have cord blood stored from all three of my daughters. I have a, uh, <laughs> and let's tell you about my life when I said I was a mess. I have a 22 year old, a 17 year old, a six year old. So I have all their cord blood. And in 2008, the US government decided they own it. So I still pay the storage fees on it, but I'm not allowed access to it unless what? they are treated. And if my kids have an FDA approved diagnosis for the use of cultured and expanded cord blood, they'll give some of that to me and let me treat the kid. So if there's three different types of leukemia right now that are completely curable, if you have cord blood stored in your kid, your kid or first degree sibling gets one of those types of leukemia, it's 100% curable from the cord blood you have stored. And that's all the FDA will allow you to treat. But if you have osteoarthritis, daddy gets osteoarthritis in his knee. If I could take some of the cord blood, culture the tissue, create the cells that are in it and to make them where they would matter from the umbilical tissue, I could just use that and treat your knee. That'd be awesome, but it's illegal. Wow, that is a lot. And depressing. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm literally thinking of people with heart failure, people, you know, with, um, let me ask you. The really heart failure study, they actually took those cells and they were squirting them in the pericardium, this is a different study, but in mice, they were squirting the pericardium in the mice to cure heart failure and it worked. But they couldn't, when they, when they killed the mice, there was none of those cells within the heart. So they, how did it cure the heart failure? Yeah. So then they gave him intervascular, still cured the heart failure. Then, but they couldn't get the cells in the heart. Then he took, injected them in the calf of the mice where they couldn't move and still cured the heart failure. Quick question. Does it help the brain? Alzheimer's? 30 seconds. De degeneration? Uh, sure. And, and, and <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think there would be a really good way. The problem is getting those cells past the blood-brain barrier. And the only way to do that would be as a nasal spray of growth factors on the cribriform plate with you laying down to treat like a post-concussion syndrome that may or may not have been done with significant success, but it's not going to be allowed in the U.S. for quite some time. Wade, come back. Check out Stem Holy Cell Expert, Dr. Wade McKinnon.com. A lot of material. Everyone needs to know this.